Behold, the Chia Pet. Not any Chia Pet, the SpongeBob SquarePants Chia Pet, uh, a brilliant piece of pop culture, right? Not only SpongeBob, but anybody who has grown up in the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s has grown a Chia Pet. How many of you have ever tried your hand? Four of you. Okay, good. All right. So for those of you who are apparently unfamiliar with uh, the Chia Pet, the Chia Pet is uh, this brilliant technological achievement where you take this terracotta pot, uh, you soak it in water, and then you take these seeds, soak them in water until they become uh, a horribly disgusting gel uh, full of seeds right here. And then you uh, proceed to rub or whatever, if you want to touch it or use a fork or something, to get the seeds all over the Chia Pet. And then in time, of course, what happens, the beautiful growth of the Chia seeds, right? They become uh, this green carpet of whatever. Apparently, SpongeBob is going to have a nice flat top here. Uh, But if you've ever done a Chia Pet, one of the brilliant things about it is they're like indestructible. I don't know like how they they make these things or like what is in that gel, Uh, but you could put this in a, in a closet and come back a few days later and it's going to grow, right? You're going to have some sort of growth here. Um, as much as I would like to just leave it like this, I wish you guys could see this. Uh, it kind of looks like, I don't know, jelly with poppy seeds in it and smells not great either. Uh, but as much as we'd like to leave it like that, uh, the beauty of the Chia Pet is it always grows, right? This is not the final state of the Chia Pet, but it's always going to become something else. It always grows. Uh, this morning, uh, here's a brilliant connection. This morning, uh, we're going to talk about temptation. Uh, and the thing about temptation uh, is that temptation always grows. It always becomes something else. It always leads to something else. Temptation is never the end of the line, uh, but it's the gel on the Chia Pet uh, that moves into something else. And so in order to dig into that, we're going to go to the book of James, chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to James. If you don't have a Bible, we have a couple um, people coming down the aisles with Bibles. Just raise your hand and they'll get you one. Uh, But James, chapter 1 is where we're going to start. It's page 847 if you're using one of these um, Bibles. Uh, So in the book of James, uh, James gives us one of the clearest uh, teachings about temptation that we get in the whole New Testament. Um, There's a few places where the authors of the the Scripture get really specific, uh, but James uh, really lays it out in the first, the beginning of this book. And so in James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 13 as we talk about this idea of temptation. So James writes this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Now, uh, there's some pretty important theology there about the nature of God and the origin of temptation. Um, We're not going to get too deep into this right now, uh, but we'll kind of... uh, scratch the surface and say uh, that God in his character uh, is not a tempter. A tempter. Sometimes maybe we can think uh, of God as, as maybe putting stuff in our path, just kind of waiting to see what we do and hoping that we mess up so he can punish us and kind of be this uh, cosmic 
uh, stepmother or something like that, wicked stepmother, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, that's just kind of like waiting for us so that he can, he can get joy out of punishing us. But James is very clear here. That temptation itself does not come from God. Instead, he says this really interesting thing uh, that each one is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires. Now, there's, again, we're not going to get too deep into this. There's a lot of um, Jewish philosophy happening in here as James is teaching. But let's leave it with, with this. I don't think there's ever been a time in my life in which I've been tempted by something, and I said, oh, that surprised me. I wasn't expecting to be tempted by this or that or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I think for all of us, when we find ourselves in a state of temptation, uh, we probably can say, yeah, I probably could have seen that coming, right? We kind of know uh, based on, on kind of our character and based on our personalities, what are the things that often lead to this temptation? And so James kind of starts this, this discussion on temptation by saying it doesn't come from God, but there's something uh, in our character, there's something about, uh, about it that you already kind of see coming. But here's what we really want to focus on, verse 15. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so James lays out uh, this idea of temptation uh, with a growth pattern. Because for James, and essential to the scripture, is temptation always grows. It never stops. And so let's kind of explore this. So he says, it first begins uh, with temptation and desire. Desire or covet, this word that we used a few weeks ago, uh, when Eve shamad, she looked at this fruit and saw that it was good for something that she thought she didn't have, uh, and so she desired it. But again, that's just the first step, right? Because what James says is that sin and desire conceive, or temptation and desire conceive, and gives birth to sin, right? So it's this second step. We start with temptation, but temptation always grows. The next thing that happens, it becomes sin. But then sin, in this brilliant turn of phrase, uh, is full grown and then gives birth to death, right? So don't miss that, that James is saying that sin gives birth, brings to life death. Now last week, uh, we talked about this idea of death within the scripture and how uh, the authors of Scripture use it. And there's this very real um, physical element of it, right? When, when Eve sinned, her and Adam were cast out of the garden, uh, but they also, for the first time, uh, began to, to move towards a physical, real death. But the more immediate effect, right? They still lived for hundreds of years after that. The more immediate effect of this sin was that they were sent into exile. They were outside of the garden. They were outside of the way that God had created them and designed them and called them to live. So this is this idea of death as both the physical, natural, real uh, concept, but also death as exile, not being able to live as God intended. So here we see this growth pattern, right, that James lays out, because temptation is not the end result. Temptation isn't the final product, but temptation always becomes something else. Temptation always grows, and so temptation becomes sin, and then sin leads to death, to exile, to separation. Kind of a bummer. <laughs> uh, and in fact, we see stories of this all throughout the scripture, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but specifically the Old Testament, is full of stories 
uh, of temptation, of people following this pattern, of this becoming real in their lives, temptation leading to sin, leading to death. One of the ones uh, that, that I think is, is especially relevant um, is in the story of, of the Exodus. So the Israelites have been brought out of Egypt by God, right? God has claimed these people. Uh, he's showed his power uh, by, by bringing them out from under the Egyptians, and now he's moving them into a new existence, a new promised land. Towards the end of that journey, they have to travel up on the east side of the Jordan River um, through an area called Moab or the plains of Moab. Now, the king of the Moabites is a guy named Balak, uh, we talked about a, a story with Balak and Balaam last summer. Maybe you remember this. Balak was the king of the Moabites. And when he hears that the Israelites are coming up through his land, he is freaked out <laughs> because he knows that they are God's people. He knows that the God that has rescued them has just dismantled the strongest army, the strongest government, the strongest empire in the world at that time. Not only did he dismantle them, but the Egyptians were like, get out of here. They were, they were just absolutely crushed by this God. And so Balak, uh, on the plains of Moab, when he hears that these same people are coming into his land, naturally he's freaked out. He thinks that uh, bad things are about to happen. So at first he tries to get a guy named Balaam, uh, who was like a rock star uh, prophet at the time, a sorcerer, to come and to curse the Israelites to stop them. Um, but that doesn't work out because Balaam's donkey breaks his foot and then starts talking to him and says, stop beating me with a stick. And yes, that really is a story in the Bible. Uh, and so uh, that doesn't work out. But Balak is not, uh, not going to rest at that. So he decides, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Um, maybe a good way to get these Israelites to stop is to distract them and perhaps even convert them to our gods. And so a good way to distract the Israelite men is with Moabite women, especially Moabite women uh, of a certain reputation. So Balak sends uh, these women into the Israelite camp. And the Israelite men, we all know where this is going, right? The Israelite men see uh, these Moabite women, and perhaps they're saying, well, God wouldn't want us to be mean to these people, right? I mean, you know, we can at least talk to them. We can, be, we can be cordial to them, and perhaps it starts like that. Uh, but one thing leads to another, uh, and pretty soon uh, the, the men of Israel and these, ba- or these Moabite women uh, are doing things that should not be done. And so in Numbers 25, or Exodus 25, it says, uh, I believe it's numbers, actually, sorry. When Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meals and bowed down before these gods, so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So we see how this growth pattern takes effect and takes root uh, and becomes more than just this temptation. The women come into camp, and at first it's just, oh, we'll just talk to them, we'll get to know them, and pretty soon one thing leads to another, and the Israelites are actually worshiping the Moabite gods, worshiping Baal of Peor. So temptation and desire leads to sin. Now the story gets uh, even stranger, uh, because God in order to, to punish the Israelites, uh, basically just starts sending this plague and people are getting sick and people are dying. The plague ends when a particularly zealous Israelite, a guy named Phineas, uh, one of the great stories in the Old Testament, uh, goes into one of the tents 
where an Israelite man and a Moabite woman are, and he takes a spear and he proceeds to uh, thrust a spear through the back of the Moabite woman and through the stomach of the Philistine man and, or the Israelite man and pins them to the ground. And yes, that really is a story in the Bible. Uh, and that ceases, uh, ceases this plague. So uh, great story. Uh, but what we see here is this growth pattern of temptation, right? It doesn't just stop with temptation, but temptation becomes sin. And then sin for this Israelite man and the others literally becomes death. Uh, But in a spiritual sense, the act of actually worshiping these false gods uh, was a sense of exile and death in itself. And so here we see this pattern because temptation never stays as it was. Now, the reason I think this story uh, is significant Uh, is because I think it tells us a little bit about the state of mind that the Israelites were in. Because these were people uh, who were very familiar with the fact that God had claimed them, right? They were God's chosen people. Uh, Their parents, and some of them perhaps even themselves, but probably their parents, were physically rescued from under the slave drivers in Egypt. Uh, Their parents saw the power of God as he just rescued wrecked havoc all over Egypt. Uh, All of these people physically saw the presence of God leading them through the wilderness, a a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. So they had this very keen understanding that they were God's people. They knew it. They knew that they had this relationship. And I imagine that that knowledge and that status of them being the people of God perhaps led them to kind of drop their guard a little bit. Perhaps they felt, well, we're good, right? God has called us. God has chosen us. God is for us. It's fine if we just talk to these women. (laughs) Uh, And so they let their guard down, and temptation then leads to sin. Sin leads to death. And I think a big part of why this happened was because uh, they thought that, ah, we're cool. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is on page 198. If you're following along at home. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, this is uh, one of the letters written by Paul, who if you're new to the Bible, Paul was one of the leaders of the early Christian church. Um, And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually talks about this exact same story. So this passage is really important. Uh, it's kind of a passage that's, that's been controversial, and a lot of people have maybe have misunderstandings of what, what's going on here. Um, but let's kind of read through this, and we'll see uh, what Paul is getting at. So in verse 1, he says, For I did not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they, for the drink, uh, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most, most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, uh, like I said, this is a passage that's caused a lot of confusion because of the fact that Paul is using imagery uh, from Israel— this distinct group of people uh, that God was working with during, during the time of the Exodus, with imagery from the body of Christ, a different group of people that God was working with present in his time, in our time today. 
And so what can happen is sometimes people can kind of say, well, Paul is trying to blend these two groups together and saying that the body of Christ is kind of this evolution of Israel. But that's not really what's going on here. Paul is just uh, using examples and painting broad strokes to connect uh, these two. Because even though they're distinct groups of people, there are some things that Israel and the body of Christ do share in common. And that thing is, and this is really important for where we're going here, the things that they do share in common is that they are both groups of people that have had experiences and, and, and interactions in which they can look at and identify that, yes, we are part of God's people. And so for Israel, they can look back at this experience of the exodus. They can look at this experience of eating the bread that God provided them in the wilderness. They can look back at these experiences when God provided water in the wilderness, in the desert, and they can say, yes, these things tell us that God is not only with us, but God is for us as well. God is on our side. In the same way, we, as members of the body of Christ, distinct, can also uh, make some of these connections when we understand that we have been baptized into the Holy Spirit or placed into the Holy Spirit. This is uh, what we here at Celebration and most evangelicals understand uh, as the only essential baptism is to be placed into the Holy Spirit. But it's this experience and this event that we can look at and we can say, yes, this is something that defi- or defines who we are. We are God's people because of these things. Okay, so don't get lost in these details, but see what Paul is doing here because this is really important. Paul is saying that the people of Israel had experiences that they could look at and say, yes, we are God's people. He has chosen us. He cares for us. We, as members of the body of Christ, have had experiences that we can look at and say, yes, God has chosen us and God is our God. He's with us and he is for us. Is everybody cool with that? We got that because it's really important what Paul is doing here. Israel had these events. We have these events. And there's a little bit of of crossover there. Um, But So Paul goes on. He says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Oh, sorry. We skipped a whole bunch, didn't we? Go back up to verse 6. Back up to verse 6. Pretend that never happened. We'll come back to that later. Erase that from your memory. All right, verse 6. Paul says this. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of they were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. That's our story that we just talked about. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. So a lot of kind of bummer things happening there. But again, what is the big picture here? What is the the core of this teaching? What Paul is saying is that these Israelites got really comfortable with the fact that they were God's people. They got really comfortable with the fact that God had called them, that God was for them, that God was with them, that God was on their side. And that comfort led them to drop their guard. And when they drop their guard, desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. Okay? 
The reason Paul is telling the Corinthians this, and the reason that we're reading this today, uh, is as a warning as well. (laughs) For us to not get too comfortable with our identity as members of the body of Christ. If you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are part of this community. What Paul is saying here is don't get too cocky. Don't get too arrogant. Don't think that just because God is with you and for you that you are immune or exempt in any way to temptation, which leads to sin, which leads to death. So this is a kind of a sobering statement that Paul is making here. That there is nobody who is immune to this, this power that temptation has. And this growth pattern of temptation is something that is a reality for every single person. Every single person in this room. Myself. You. We are all... Uh, potential victims. We are all in the targets, in the crosshairs of temptation, which always grows into something else. So there's no person in here that should ever get to the point where they think, well, temptation, you know, it's cool. That's maybe for them, but God is with me. God is for me. All of us are in this place. All of us Uh, are underneath the crosshairs and the targets of temptation. So this is pretty dark. (laughs) This is pretty deep. We're down, way down here. Let's start working our way back up. Because it gets better. There's a silver lining. Back to that verse 11 that you never heard before. Uh, Verse 11, Paul writes this. These things happen to them as examples. And were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So look back at these people, look back at their attitude, and look back at the results of them dropping their guard and learn from them, learn these principles. So, verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful, don't fall, because we're all subject to temptation. But... Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the reality is all of us Each person in this room uh, is subject to the power, the growth pattern of temptation, which leads to sin, which leads to death. None of us are exempt. However, all of us in this room who have put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are able to approach temptation, are able to sit in uh, these crosshairs, to sit under this dark reality with this understanding that God is not watching to see how we respond to temptation. God is not keeping track and keeping tabs on us, but in a very real, in a very powerful, 
spiritual, somewhat mysterious way, what Paul is saying is that God is not looking down at you, but God is in that place with you. In that darkness of temptation, God is present. In what seems like a hopeless situation that leads to this growth pattern of temptation and sin and death, God is with you. Not only is he with you, but he's there supporting and he's there giving you the opportunity to withstand. Temptation leads to sin and leads to death. But God's presence in the darkness of that temptation gives us an opportunity to persevere, to withstand, to hold back this growth pattern. This is a really powerful and really important thing for us to understand. Because the reality is, is we all are victims to temptation, but the overwhelming reality is that God is present with us in our darkest, darkest place. And that place we never want to go, that place we never want to go back to, yet we probably will, you're not there alone because God is with you, supporting you, and providing a way out. But that's not it. There's more. Go back to James. Temptation always grows. Temptation never stays in that place. It always becomes something else. We started by seeing this pattern of temptation going from desire and temptation to sin to death. When we go back to James, he starts this chapter off with a different perspective. Verse 2, James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, so this trial has the same connotation as temptation. Uh, Because you know, in verse 3, that the testing or the tempting of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What is James doing here? In verse 13, we see this idea of temptation and desire giving birth to sin and sin giving birth to death. But he starts this chapter by saying temptations and trials can also lead to perseverance. And that perseverance can lead to maturity. So what's happening here? Temptation is not staying a seed on the head of a terracotta Spongebob. But temptation is becoming something else because temptation always grows. Sometimes temptation gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. But sometimes trials and temptation gives birth to perseverance, which gives birth to maturity. Maybe a better way to put it uh, is a perseverance that leads to knowing God deeper, to being closer to God. But temptation always becomes something else. 
the questions that we have to ask ourselves and the, 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 the X factor is which way does it go? When you face those temptations, do you give in and do you allow it to move into sin or do you take the support of the God that is with you and say, I'm going to persevere. I'm going to work and live through this because that perseverance becomes maturity. And so this is the reality is that we all face temptation. You are not exempt because of anything that you are or done. It doesn't matter if you've put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm glad and hope that you have, but that doesn't stop you or exempt you or keep you out of the crosshairs of temptation. However, what it does is it gives you an opportunity to change the growth pattern, to shift the trajectory Instead of a movement to sin and death, the perseverance that is provided uh, through God is something that actually leads to growth and to life. So I guarantee you that today, or this week, but I'm going to stick with today, (laughs) you're going to find yourself in that place of temptation something that you probably already know (laughs) where it's coming from, that temptation uh, to go to that website, that temptation uh, to talk in that tone, that temptation to look at that person as a thing rather than an image of God, that temptation to eat that thing or to watch that thing or to do that thing. Right? We're all going to face this opportunity uh, to step into a growth pattern. The temptation that you experience is not going to stay a temptation. It's going to become death, or under the perseverance that's available through God, it's going to become life and maturity. So which way is it going to go? Right? There's, there's this um, really cheesy saying <laughs> that's really wrong <laughs> that says something along the lines of, like, there's a wolf inside of you. Which, you know, they're fighting. Everybody heard this? There's, like, two wolves fighting inside of you. Which one wins? And it's the one that you feed it. And I can see where you're going with that, but here's the thing. <laughs> if you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, good has already won. It's not a fair fight because the perseverance that comes from God is already stronger than the sin that leads to death. You already have a way out. It's there. But it's up to us to step into that, to allow that perseverance to be the trajectory, to allow our temptation to move in that way, this available escape that God has already provided for us to persevere, it's there if you've put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, may we be people who step in that direction. May we be people who, when we face temptation, 
see it as an opportunity to grow and persevere rather than an opportunity of sin and death and despair. You will face temptation. The only question is, how will you respond? In which growth pattern will that temptation take? Let's pray. God, this is a sobering reality uh, that none of us are exempt to this really dark power of temptation, something that, as James tells us, can lead to sin and then ultimately give birth to death and exile. Yet, you are with us in that temptation, calling us to persevere in calling us to step into maturity. So God, help us to be people who do persevere. Help us to be people who are reminded uh, that temptation is not a death sentence. Uh, Temptation, in fact, can be an opportunity to grow. Temptation can be an opportunity to become closer to you and to the people that you have created us to be. So give us the courage. uh, Give us the endurance. Give us the perseverance to withstand. God, when we do fall, when we do step into sin, God, remind us of your forgiveness. Remind us of your second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. Remind us that we have never fall or we never will fall too far for you to bring us back. But God, make it our desire to be people who move towards you rather than away. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to grow through temptation because of that. May we be people who follow in that trajectory. We pray all of these things in your persevering, enduring, and strong name. Amen. Amen. Grace be with you.